five, four, three, two, one, go. Welcome to episode 29 of the BBFC podcast. I'm Catherine and I'm Head of Communications. In this episode, we'll hear Joe speak to film examiner Hamad about the classification of superhero franchises. Before that, I'm going to speak to Liz Bales, Chief Executive of the British Video Association, or BVA, about its role in the home entertainment industry. Welcome to the BBSU podcast, Liz. Um, We should probably start by mentioning that you're not only Chief Executive of the British Video Association, but also the Industry Trust for IP Awareness. Now, the Industry Trust has featured in the podcast previously, back in episode seven, which feels like a long time ago. Now we're on episode 29. So today we'll really focus on the role of the British Video Association or the BVA, including a rather exciting event you've got coming up. So for those listeners who might not have heard of the BVA, what's its role? Hi Catherine, thanks for inviting us to join today. Um, I'm really excited, it feels quite esteemed to be part of the BBFC podcast group. Um, So today we're going to focus, as you've just mentioned, on the British Video Association, the the BVA. Um, For those listeners who who don't have any awareness of the organisation, it is the part of the industry that really looks after video so it is there to support and to promote um, video consumption when you look at the UK film industry as a whole film and cinema has been around for a hundred years plus but the video side of the business is almost like the baby sister really and it's kind of you know we, we call it the baby sister but it's still been there for 40 odd years and in that 40 years it's gone through a huge transition from VHS and in fact Betamax in those early days to DVD Blu-ray and now all the subscriptions services like Netflix and our role is really to promote that for the benefit of the industry and ensure that consumers understand how they can navigate those different formats. It's really interesting to hear you talk about it like the little sister to the film industry um, and to talk about things like VHS and Betamax because I'm sure some of our younger listeners might not remember those, whereas lots of people that work here obviously do. There was a great clip I found on YouTube um, a couple of months ago which was a group of seven-year-olds in the States as a test case they'd been given um, popped in a room and given a VHS cassette and a VHS machine in front of a really tiny old TV and they were just left to kind of work out what it was and it was fascinating watching them that you know the whole thing about there was a piece of tape inside a disc that had to go into a really big box and you had to kind of play around with a tracking device to get the picture to stand still so it's it, it is brilliant and it means different things to different people you know for for again the younger audiences now most kids you know from the age of three plus know how to navigate an iPad and would know how to find the BBC iPlayer or to log on to Netflix and would be able to pick the film of their choice. So again, it's down to organisations like ourselves, including the BBFC, to make sure we help consumers identify what's an appropriate film for them to watch and so they're not kind of lost in that online world, watching titles that are inappropriate for their age. Absolutely. And, you know, as you say, home entertainment, you know, is everything that you do and it also forms an absolutely huge part of the BBFC's work and that is also shifting online as well. Does um, the move to digital and platforms like Netflix and Blinkbox, does that mean the demise of physical DVDs? 
I, I don't think so. I think there's a couple of commentators out there that you'll see a few headlines about the the, uh, the demise of the disc. And I don't think that's right, really. I think consumers like a little bit of everything. And what we kind of see in, in our group, um, in 2014, about 24 million people, that's nearly half the UK population, bought a, a, a video of some sort, whether that was a disc or a digital copy. That is worth about six million pounds a day going through retail checkout so it's a really really important sector of the film industry its contribution is about two 2.2 billion pounds a year so when we look at the market what do we see we always put the consumer first and what we're kind of seeing from our evidence is that three quarters of the market is still very much engaged in discs but people like to do a bit of both so the same person that will go and buy pick up a disc in store they're also the people who are accessing from one of the digital platforms or in fact taking one of the subscriptions on the digital services so you tend to see people doing a bit of everything and we think that that will continue that will be the shape of the market you won't see one thing disappear you'll see everything done to a greater or lesser extent depending on what your age is what type of consumption you want how many devices you've got that's a real thing you know if you've got multiple devices and you want to watch films on the go you'll do a bit of digital as well as still doing a bit of physical so you don't think it'll be end of the dvd or blu-ray in the christmas stocking or the box set under the tree at christmas then no i don't think so i don't think so at all and one of the reasons for that actually is because what the industry is really doing to kind of help consumers move on and make sure they get the best value from from video product increasingly particularly on blu-rays Blu-rays will come with a digital code and so you actually get the disc but you also have the ability to log on to one of the online platforms, unlock your code and then really you get multiple versions of the film. So whether you want your kids to be accessing it when they're away studying or in a different room of the house, you get more value from the video product you've got. In fact, we've even seen some communications that would suggest VHS is making a comeback in the way that vinyl is coming back. I'm not I'm not sure I would say that's under the Christmas tree for this year but we definitely think there's going to be a healthy disc market for years to come brilliant i knew i was right making my family keep my old vhs box sets <laughs> so the bva works with the bbfc in a number of ways and um, one of the biggest being that you sit on our consultative council and um, people can read about that in our annual report and what's the benefit of working with people like the bbfc for the bva it's, it's an incredibly important relationship. I think the whole um, role that the BV, BBFC play in the industry is, is incredibly important because essentially by having the certif- certification on disc in a very prominent place, that's what gives consumers absolute confidence that the content that they're purchasing is appropriate for the audiences that might be able to watch it in the home environment or on the move. And I think that when you're looking at something in cinema, you're a real captive audience and you're seeing something in a kind of a fleeting shot. But when you're at home with with a disc or whether you're kind of on the move with digital content, anyone can pick up that device, anyone can walk into that room. And so it's really important that we're giving consumers that really clear signal as to what is going to be appropriate for different audiences. So, you know, it's been a very, very close relationship for a number of years. Um, The industries go hand in hand, the organisations go hand in hand. I couldn't see a time whereby we were putting out content and not giving consumers those clear signals as to this is appropriate for ages of different 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 levels. Absolutely, and I think that is something sometimes people forget about that the film 
industry, the home and industry and the BBFC are so closely interlinked and we work together as one massive kind of ecosystem all carrying each other's yeah, messages. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's the, that consultative council and those meetings really, really show that. And they do. And I think it's, it, it kind of, it also underlines where where you kind of get into all the issues about piracy and you look at all of the, the torrents where you can access films from unauthorised sources. When we look at those torrents, invariably they don't carry any age rating. So you can be a 10-year-old going onto those platforms and you can be accessing content that is incredibly inappropriate to the to the level that you're actually quite impacted by some of the imagery that you would see that the reason why we have bbfc is to ensure that young people are protected from things that is just too difficult or too too uh, inappropriate for them to view and i think you know it's part of just that gateway where we have a very organized industry in the uk where we want all of the audiences in the uk from whatever background you come from to really enjoy film and explore film but we want that to be a positive experience and so that's why we all work together to make sure that those signposts are there for consumers. You're now going to be celebrating the home entertainment industry in an awards ceremony that's coming up quite soon. What do those awards involve? So the industry, like last year, there were over 5,000 releases on video, whether that's film or documentaries or music titles or fitness videos. Um, and increasingly, those, all of those films have to compete with each, with each other for shelf space, for uh, audiences' attention online. And so to cut through in that market, you have to be very, very creative with your marketing and your consumer messages. Um, and you have to be really very, very inventive with often really tiny, tiny budgets because there's so many titles coming down the pipeline. So our role at the BVA is really to champion that innovation and the skills of the teams, the individuals themselves who come up with great ideas on communications. And so every year we get together, we host the biggest party of the year in the category about 1100 guests will join us and we'll celebrate about 25 awards that really do look for best in class what was the best stunt that got people out to the store to buy skyfall for james bond for example or on the contrast what was it was it about the minions that you just love so much what's the way that they spoke to you so that you went out and you watched that film either in cinema or you picked it up on a video Brilliant. I think the fantastic thing about awards is it just reminds you about what a wealth of creativity and content there is out there every single year. Because every single year the entries are so, so different, yet always completely show-stopping. And you just think, wow, you know, all that work that went in. And I think it's a really, really nice way to recognise those people in the industry that do work on the home entertainment side. It's incredibly important. The, the dedication of the teams that we see is, you know, the passion that they bring to the table. Often around um, a, a, a video release, you have less access to talent. You're, you're unlikely to have all of your cast and crew descend, you know, into any part of the UK for you to be able to interview them. And so you have to be quite quick-witted and quite smart. And it's amazing that some films just cut through against the odds. They become a real passion. So a film, for example, like Northern Soul that was released last year, year very very small release huge title on the on the online platforms and in store on video it just they found a real way to connect with that northern soul audience and get them to kind of want to own that as a fantastic part of their collections and so it's incredibly important all industries ultimately they're about people if you've got the right people that will really help you 
promote your business and for us video it is in a very exciting time as audiences move from buying discs in store increasingly into going online we still need to kind of compete in that space that we want people to value the content we want people to purchase the content because without that traction we don't get to make more of that content for audiences to enjoy in the future Brilliant. And that links in really nicely with your role at the Industry Trust as well. And, you know, I'd really encourage listeners to go back to listen to episode seven, where Katie talks to us more about um, your role in the Trust. Um, But on the BBA side, how can podcast listeners find out more about the organisation? So we are, you can find us on Twitter. Uh, There's lots of stuff going on on Twitter at the moment about the BBA Awards 2015. Um, We run a host of um, education forums, so insight seminars, and you'll often find those popping up on Twitter as well. And with that, you'll get lots of great insights about what technology is happening out there that's driving um, driving consumption, such as TV screens. We spend a lot of time looking at how big the TV set is getting in the house, because that then determines how many Blu-rays or DVDs you want to buy. And you're seeing this huge explosion of 50-inch pluses in a, at a rate that we've not seen before. So that type of thing is fascinating. Again, you'll find that on Twitter. There's old school standard uh, websites, bva.org.uk. Lots of the information's on there as well. Or you could tap into um, there's some great trade publications. The Ray Gun, for example, is a great new newsletter that you can sign up to on a weekly basis and that tells you not just kind of what's hot and what's not but quite a lot of the gossip about what's going on in the industry as well so that's always a good one brilliant fantastic Liz well I think that's been a whistle-stop tour around the BBA and the big things that we've got coming up and of course um we'll let listeners know where they can find out more information especially about those awards when the winners are announced Wonderful. And those awards are on the 11th of June. Yeah, they look sure forward are. to seeing it's you there. In my diary. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Liz. So that was Liz Bales, Chief Executive of the BBA. Now we'll hear Joe interview Hamad, one of our BBFC examiners, about classifying superhero movies. So, Hamad, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here again, Joe. We were talking about comedy last time, but this time we're going to discuss the classification and the nature of the superhero franchises. So we want to discuss whether new or traditionally non-superhero characters, uh, for example, the James Bonds or Bournes of this world, uh, who take on action roles, uh, require a different treatment than those which are more of a known quantity. And of course, when the reverse happens and a well-known superhero franchise changes its tone or its style. Now, we're not going to have time to discuss every single major franchise uh, that have come and gone over the decades. But um, what are the changes you've noticed in your time here well it's interesting because over the years the nature of the superhero and the nature of the sort of spy hero has evolved quite a bit um i'm old enough to remember the days of sort of james bond and you know the early james bond with roger moore and even sean connery being quite sort of suave um you know martini sipping um heroes who weren't really that brutal or edgy and they weren't they were violent obviously but only when needed and they had a bit of class to them so the effect was that the films were actually milder so they were more pg type films you know spy who loved me or you know view to a kill one of the major uh, things that impacted i think the spy genre was the born identity the first one which was actually much more of a stronger uh, kind of hero a tougher kind of hero Mm. so you know he had a bit of a six pack he was a bit of a muscle man and he would uh, talk with his fists that kind of thing um and those those films came and slightly lifted up the the rating as it were Mm. so the born identity being uh, you know uh, a 12 at the time and this is sort of the early 2000s 
kind of had an impact on the rebooting of the Bond franchise itself. Yeah. So so you can see Jason Bourne as a bit of a precursor to the Daniel Craig type James Bond, who is a different breed of um, spy from sort of Roger Moore and all those kind of James Bond figures. At the same time, talking about superheroes, we had uh, Spider-Man. So in the way that the, the spy hero has been kind of rebooted, the comic book, the classic comic book superhero franchise was also being looked at once again by Hollywood. Um, and uh, similarly, you know, Spider-Man, again, being too old, uh, I can remember uh, the TV series, The Amazing Spider-Man um, in, in the 70s and 80s, um, which was, again, just a really mild affair. You know, he was just a teenage kid and uh, it was more about the plot. Um, but when Sam Raimi directed uh, the Spider-Man film in 2002 and it came to us, um, it reflected uh, a stronger kind of experience. Spider-Man came to us at a time when uh, we were actually introducing the 12A category. So this is interesting from from uh, a classification point of view. Well, that's right. So remember, I mean, I, I hate to scare you with this, but 13 years ago, that, that's when we started. <laughs> wow. First, uh, me, me and Hamad both started at the border about the same time. That's right, yeah. Spider-Man at the time was one of the things that I saw, one of my first memories of working here. And I remember when I saw it, um, the particularly the fight scene at the end of the film between the Green Goblin and Spider-Man is actually quite bloody and quite full-on, perhaps in a way we hadn't, seen so much in a superhero film at least but of course we had seen in the sort of the james bourne type film i mean this is a director who made uh, the evil dead you know um so now he was handling like this superhero that kids love and you know they, they buy the merchandise the lunch boxes the t-shirts and the toys um so we really had to deal with a stronger kind of film um and yeah that last sequence when uh, spider-man is sort of fighting with uh, the green goblin is is really really quite meaty and, and, and a little bit dark in tone it resulted in us uh giving the film a 12 as opposed to the more traditional PG for the kind of superhero genre that existed before. So 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds could not have this big birthday party celebration with all their kids to watch this amazing new Spider-Man film. And we had letters written into us, I think by the kids themselves or their parents or both, um, complaining about the fact that it was rated too high. So the superhero had effectively now become a 12 level superhero. As a footnote to the Spider-Man story, um, the 12A was actually in the works, so the company uh, resubmitted Spider-Man with our brand new 12A certificate, which meant that ultimately, um, you know, children under 12 could see Spider-Man, but during that time, some councils had already kind of taken up the, the kind of controversy that had brewed, um, which is quite interesting, because sometimes we, you know, it's not us getting into trouble for passing something too low or not cutting some work, but actually passing a film too high for children. So some councils um, did defy our classification at the time because the 12A hadn't come in. Do you, do you think that this is something that sort of superhero films perhaps struggle with a little bit in the sense that the audience appeal because of the history of these characters is so long and so wide? They appeal to very young children as well as people who grew up with them. Yet at the same time, there's sort of perhaps a bit of a push in some uh, some of the franchises to make the films grittier and darker. So, I mean, obviously I'm thinking directly of The, the Dark Knight's a very good example there where the films are quite dark. And yet there's a lot of younger people who really want to see a Batman film. Um, on the other hand, there's the Avengers franchise, which is quite, you know, not, not that the Dark Knight films aren't family friendly as such, but is perhaps has a wider appeal. I think there's a sort of a... 
I don't know, a, a conflict there between what they're trying to do. Yeah, yeah, there is. It's a fascinating question. There's a lot of uh, tension there because there's, a di- there's different things here. So first of all, you've got the onset of loving a superhero or loving the comic books. That starts so early. I've got a nephew who's four now and he is now immersed in the world of you know Marvel comic book heroes. Um, that's four, by the way. So that's like you, right? It starts then. And then you have um, the genre fans. So genre fans around the world will be of all ages. So you'll have like, you know, uh, films that are more for children or slightly more skewed towards children. And then you'll have The Dark Knight, which you mentioned, which is, again, another uh, landmark for us in terms of classification at 12A. I mean, that film obviously came in, again, rebooted franchise. Chris Nolan took over the uh, long-running you know, Batman uh, franchise, we're talking 60s TV show Batman, which was really just a lot of fun, um, really quite um, silly and light and innocent. And then we had, you know, the Tim Burton reboot at the end of the 80s, which was kind of like a very surreal, stylish kind of Batman. And then Nolan again, you know, taking it up and making it gritty and making it kind of more real world and just felt more um, closer to, just closer to the bone. So then, the Dark Knight uh, was probably the the, the the strongest of the of the franchise, uh, and, and as we, as we know, we had quite a few complaints about that film. Um, looking back at it now, I think you know we did make the right decision to to, to pass it twelve A, um, but it's more about the tone of that film. It's the tone, and it's a dark film, obviously, and it's got the Joker, who's this very very unusual. Um, iconic, you know, villain. I, I don't think there's been one before or since quite like that. Um, and that really unsettled a lot of people as well. You know, he yeah. had that, those scenes with the knife, didn't he? Well, that's right. I mean, he's sort of a, he's a manic character and perhaps in a, not in the same way as Gollum, but nevertheless, he's quite sort of psychologically complex in that way. That's right, you without know. getting into psychology, but he's that kind of character where he speak, he reaches out to the hero and says, we're the same. Mm. You know, he's kind of like the flip side of the hero's yeah. psyche. And that's quite disturbing and unsettling because when you go for a popcorn movie, you want your good guys on one side and your bad guys on the other side. And so that's where people are a bit, I think, unsettled. Yeah. And again, like you say, it's a tone. So while there are violent moments in the film, you don't see I mean, I'm thinking of the, the pencil scene where he does his magic trick. And mm. obviously the implication is that the, the pencil has been used to kill the, uh, the bad guy but you don't see anything as such it's more the idea of it which um is obviously quite a nasty idea but the way it's sort of you know presented in the film it could have been a lot more gory well know? exactly yeah i mean chris nolan again so he's like this director who, who is like the master of creating the impression of something impression of violence through cuts i think batman begins which was also a 12 a in 2005 had like the most amount of edits in a Hollywood film. It had like, I don't know, 3000 or 4,000 edits. So even when you're trying to sort of strike at somebody, you're, you're getting it cut three times around. So it makes you feel like you've seen something strong and uh, that's what it is. We don't necessarily see something strong in the dark night, but we feel it. So, I mean, the dark night was the most complained about film in the year. So, I mean, how did we react to that? Did we actually do anything about it or how, how was that dealt with? Well, you're right. I mean, we received for The Dark Knight uh, 364 complaints in uh, in that year from members of the public who had uh, complained that the film was, you know, too dark and too violent for children. Just to put it into perspective, uh, 364 complaints. I think that year we got about 450 complaints in total. Uh, and then basically what we did was we incorporated that issue into our guidelines consultation so our guidelines consultation is us going to the public and getting their feedback on films and issues and and our guidelines 
and our categories. And we basically uh, took the Dark Knight to, you know, a group of people and uh, asked the public, you know, what they thought about the fact that we had already passed it 12A. So, I mean, what did they say in, in relation to, to that question? So basically, so even though it was the most complained about film in 2008, after we showed it to a group of respondents, 69% of them agreed with our 12A category for The Dark Knight. Now, that's a bit lower than we usually would get in that kind of a, in a, that kind of a survey, but still, you know, reasonably high, quite a majority of people um, that agreed uh, that in the end, despite the controversy, the 12A decision was the right one. Sure. Now, I mean, The Dark Knight isn't the only film to um, come in and sort of be near the 12A level, perhaps not quite, depending on um, how you look at it. And um, as we go up the categories, uh, one film that stands out is perhaps Chronicle. Now, this is um, sort of going back to the original question I asked you. This is a film that is sort of a superhero movie, but these aren't traditional superheroes. They're not, they're not at least originally, uh, wearing costumes. They're not established characters, but yet they do develop over the course of the film um, superhero powers and you know it it all um, escalates from there so um, how did we deal with Chronicle when it came into us I mean Chronicle was an interesting film for the reason that you said that it was a superhero film and yet it wasn't really it was a film about you know bullying and, and teenagers and the complexities of being in high school in America so starting the starting point really was just three teenagers they weren't superheroes and when they discover a power uh, and the question becomes, how do they use it? Do they use it for good, or they, do they use it for, for you know, for, for wrong? Um, and that that was a really interesting film because it reflected real world um, angst and real world kind of teenage concerns through the prism of the superhero genre. Um, and that did become a very interesting film from a twelve A point of view because if it was Spider Man or if it was, you know, Batman, there would be a familiarity with the character, an audience expectation, they knew they would know what they were going to get. With Chronicle, we, we didn't know what we were going to get. And uh, when things really ramp up in that film and that story towards the climax, um, especially, um, there are some moments in the film where one particular character, or should we say superhero, who's kind of gone to the dark side because he was bullied, uses his powers and, um, and then kind of um, exacts violence, which is a little bit strong and a little bit too real. So that, so there were two moments in that film specifically that were kind of breached the the twelve A guidelines for us, and they were suggested to be removed if the if the company wanted a twelve A, which they did. Sure. And the other thing to say about that film as well is it's quite unusual in that it's it's shot with handheld cameras, which is something that's obviously become quite a staple of um, cinema, but quite unusual for a superhero film as well. Um, and I, did that sort of, you know, add a degree of realism to the to the violence? You think? Yeah, I think it did. I think I remember a, a promo for the film, which almost looked like a kind of YouTube video, like a, a viral video, sure, yeah. which was so it's definitely appealing to the YouTube generation. And the handheld cameras were part of that. They really were um, quite edgy, and it reminded me of another film, not a superhero film, but a disaster film by J.J. Abrams' uh, Cloverfield, mm. which had a lot of shaky handheld camera work during its quite sustained scenes of threat. Um, so yeah, that I think certainly makes a difference in the way the audiences perceive the film. So we've obviously spoken about um, some films which are not exactly niche, but getting that way, um, and other films like the Avengers um, and you know the uh, Iron Man films, which have mass uh, mass appeal. Um, then you've got other films, uh, other superhero films, which are aimed directly at adults. And I'm thinking, uh, I think of the Watchmen, for example. Yeah. Um, how was that dealt with when it came to the board? Was there any conversation about whether it could be uh, less than an 18, or was it always going to be? 
squarely for adults. Yeah, it's quite an unusual case in a sense because it was obviously a fantasy, you know, comic book or graphic novel inspired, Alan Moore's uh, graphic novel inspired film by Zack Snyder. Um, and I think that uh, it did come with a 15 request, but um, we gave it an 18 because it did contain some quite quite strong scenes, quite strong, bloody and, uh, you know, sort of nasty scenes of, of violent detail. Um, there was a circular saw cutting an arm. There was a, um, you know, a, a child character's teeth biting into human flesh. And it was quite focused and dwelt upon. And at 15, we, we do say that, you know, you dwelling on the infliction of pain and injury um, uh, is a problem at 15. And, and, and films will go to 18 if they if they emphasize that uh, that amount of blood and injury. Um, but rare because being a fantasy film... Um, you don't usually see that level of, uh, of, of bloody detail or, or strong violence. Um, so whilst we entertained the notion of, of you know, the 15 request, um, we were pretty sure that the, this is the kind of uh, violence that we do pass at 18. And in this case, the fantasy setting wasn't enough of a mitigation. And I think that that reflects the, the, the target audience as well in a way, because, you know, those, those are graphic novels that are much darker, much bloodier much and they actually have more kind of adult oriented kind of themes as well so the watchman is is an 18 uh, but it's an unusual case for sure yeah I and mean, it's got a very sort of clear target audience i suppose hasn't it? it's a book such a well-known quantity that's right uh, and speaking about the well-known quantities and going straight back down to the other end of the spectrum uh, the lego movie uh, which came in which um again mass mass market appeal for a lot of people i mean everybody grew up with lego everybody knows what it is um how was that dealt with when it came to the board did that give us any pause at you or was that a fairly straightforward one perhaps in a similar way to to watchman was i mean it's uh, obviously a, uh, a U film we did consider the issues at you uh, it does it is a rather brilliant film in the way that it incorporates the superhero you know journey and story and also uh, actual superhero characters you know like batman and others and and there's quite a classic kind of hero's journey in that way and just taking the construction worker and, you know, turning him into the hero who's going to save the universe. So it's um, a film that does contain scenes of violence, but at the end of the day, the violence is with Lego characters and Lego characters and Lego itself um, is, is also a toy that is very familiar to children. So the context there was very much of looking at it um, in the context of fantasy, in the context of lego in fact i mean there's a scene where a character's head is knocked off clean clean off um by a flying coin but he just carries on talking to his friends now that's so silly and so cartoonish that you know even uh viewers at the u level so we're talking about four five six seven um are used to seeing that kind of stuff in you know in the cartoons uh, on even cbb's or cbbc so um I think that we were confident that the audience would be familiar with the uh, the fantasy side of it. And um, I think there were a few complaints, weren't there? I'm not sure how many, but uh, certainly um, the film proved to be very popular. OK, thanks very much, Mard. And that seems like a good point to stop and, uh, and a good uh, guide through the uh, superhero genre. Thanks very much. You're welcome, Joe. It's always a pleasure. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the podcast. Don't forget you can still send us your questions or ideas for things you'd like to hear about in future episodes of the podcast by emailing us on podcast at bbfc.co.uk. You can also talk to us on Twitter via at bbfc. I think I got it. 
But just in case, tell me the whole thing again. I wasn't listening.